Turn your Bibles to Job chapter 1. We'll start there this morning as we look at the book of Job. Appreciate you all for being here today and appreciate the opportunity to be with you. We've enjoyed being with Adam and Aaron, but it's a blessing to also be with you today. It's what a wonderful blessing it is in this world that we live in that seems to be getting more and more wicked to be able to be in a room with so many people who are interested in serving God and worshiping Him. So thank you for being here. We sometimes take for granted uh, being able to be with one another. We assume it's Sunday morning, everybody will be here, and that's where we need to be. But thank you for taking the time and making the commitment to be here. It's an encouragement to me, and I hope the things that we talk about this morning will be an encouragement to you. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul says, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. We have the Old Testament in our Bibles. Over half of our Bibles is the Old Testament. And these things are not here just to take up space. God has reserved these stories for us and these accounts so that our faith can be strengthened and we can be more like he would have us to be. And we certainly learn a lot of things that strengthen our faith from the book of Job. We remember the terrible things that Job suffered. How he suffered the loss of all of his possessions. And all of his children were killed. And notice what he says in Job chapter 1 verse 22. Notice what is said about Job there in Job verse, chapter 1, verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. He endured all of that trouble and all that heartache, and he remained faithful to God. And then the devil wasn't done with him. We remember in chapter 2 that he told God, skin for skin, if you let me affect his health, then he'll turn his back and deny you. And Job didn't do that. If you look in chapter 2, verse 7, beginning, So Satan went from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took him for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his mouth. Even his wife is encouraging him to sin. He says, I'm not listening to you. I'm going to be faithful to God in all of that. Job had incredible faith. I want to tell you, you don't develop that faith in the heat of the battle. You don't wait until things get bad and then get serious about your faith. You don't wait till you get the prognosis from the doctor that you've got just months to live and then say, I'm going to get serious about my religion now. Job had been working on that when things were good. And we need to do that as well. Notice what's said about Job before all of this started happening in verse 8 of verse 1. Notice what God said about him. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright one, one that fears God and shuns evil? Job had developed his faith before the times got difficult. And we need to do the same. We need to be building our faith when the waters are smooth. When there isn't this terrible adversity in our lives, so that we're prepared when difficult times come, and they will come. So how did Job get this faith that we all need? Turn over your Bibles to chapter 26. Job chapter 26, we learn about this faith that Job had and how he developed it. And I want to tell you, I think he developed it by just looking at the world around him. Look at chapter 26, beginning of verse 5. The dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Sheol is naked before him, and destruction has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. 
He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters. At the boundary of light and darkness, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeting serpent. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And how small a whisper we hear of him. Job had been looking at the world around him, and he was amazed at the things that he saw, amazed at what God had done and what God had created. Let's look at some of the things that he had noticed. First off, he had noticed that he had stretched the north over empty space, and he hung the earth on nothing. Our house is a two-story house, has a walkout basement, and out that second story, we have a deck. And it's a nice deck, but there's a problem with it. It's out in the blazing sun. And most of the day, it's just too miserably hot and bright to be out there on that deck. What I really need to do is build a, a roof over my deck. But it's on the second story, and it require a lot of structural know-how that I don't have. Now, I know there's some folks here who could help me with that, but for me, that's a daunting task. I can't just say to that roof, I want you right there, and it's there. I'd have to support that somehow. But God has hung the earth on nothing. He can say to the earth, I want you there, and I want you to stay there and move in that orbit just like so, and it does. And he can tell all those stars, I want you there, I want you there, and there's nothing to support them. He puts them there, he hangs them on nothing. It's amazing. About a year and a half ago, our youngest daughter was six years old. And she started on us that she wanted a telescope. And we couldn't understand why a six-year-old girl wanted a telescope or where she even got that idea. But we thought it was just one of those passing things that she'd say it today and it'd be gone tomorrow. But no, she kept on it. I want a telescope. Dad, Mom, when can I get a telescope? Well, her birthday was coming up, and so we said, well, I guess we'll get her a telescope. That's what she wants. And so we got a telescope. It happened to be that when her birthday came around, the moon wasn't in a phase where we could see it. But I kept my eye out for when the moon would be in the right spot where we could get Emily's telescope out and look at it. Well, one night the kids were out playing in the yard and I happened to look up in the sky and right over the driveway there was the moon, as bright as could be. So I went in and got the telescope out and I found the moon in the eyepiece. And I started calling everyone over one by one, said, come here, you've got to look at this. And as everyone looked in that eyepiece and saw the moon, everyone's reaction was, wow. You could see the craters. You could see the textures and the shadows. And everyone was amazed. And as I looked through that telescope at the moon, I, I was struck with the, uh, the fact that that's a real place. It's just as real as where I'm standing now. And God made that place. And he made every other place that we see in the sky. Those are real places. And God created them. And he created them just by saying the word, and they were there, hung on nothing. And then... As I, we looked in that telescope, I saw something I had been told about, but I didn't realize it until I saw it. That the moon is moving. It's constantly moving. And just about as soon as you can get the moon in the eyepiece of the telescope, it's gone. It was there just about long enough for someone to watch it, and then I'd have to move it again as that moon moves across the horizon. And it's moving in the motion that God has established for it. And everything out there is moving in perfect symphony as God directed it. Job was amazed at what he saw in God's creation. And I'm amazed at that as well. 
Job goes on and he says he binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. A while back, after I think it was a big spring rain and I saw the ditches full of water, I got to wondering, how much rain really falls? And you know, we talk about I get an inch of rain, I got a half inch of rain in my house. How much water is that? I got to thinking, you know, let's say that I had an acre lot and that we got an inch of rain. How much rain would that be? Well, I was getting all geared up for a math problem. I wanted to see if it still worked, if I still could do math, but Google ruined that all for me because you can just look that up and Google will tell you right off how much water falls on an acre of ground when you get an inch of rain. You know what the number is? 27,154 gallons of water fall on your yard if you got an acre a lot and you get an inch of rain. That's a, that's a big number. 27,000 gallons of water. Well, that was a big number. I thought, how can I get a better feel for how much that is? Well, we know water weighs a lot. How much does that weigh? Well, that weighs 226,000 pounds or 113 tons of water that falls on your yard if you get an inch of rain. Another big number that I was having trouble getting my head around. So then I got to thinking, well, you know, you see these tanker trucks at the gas station filling up the tanks. How, much, how many tanker trucks of water would that be? That'd be about three tanker trucks of water that floated over your head in those puffy clouds and dropped on your yard if you got an inch of rain. It's amazing. But then I got to thinking more about that. You know, it's not just my yard. It's my neighbor's yard. It's every yard on my street. It's every yard in the county, in the state. These big systems come through and drop rain on everybody. How much water is in those clouds floating over our heads? That's amazing, isn't it? And Job was amazed at that. He says he binds up the waters in the thick clouds and the clouds aren't broken under them. Isn't that amazing? There's probably some school kid here in the audience who says, yeah, we know about that. We just learned about that the other day. That's the water cycle, preacher. Don't you know that? Well, I know that. But who designed the water cycle? Who designed it so that the water can come out of the oceans, the Pacific Ocean, and make it all the way here to Kentucky and drop that water on your yard? God did that. Isn't that amazing? He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and they're not broken under. And can we stop and talk about the Big Bang? Those who believe in the Big Bang have to believe that this water happened, cycle happened just accidentally. That we had an explosion. And just accidentally, this water cycle that moves these massive amounts of water just happened by accident. And it wasn't just the water cycle, was it? It was every other natural law that we understand today. It all happened by accident. Every element in the periodic table and every property of that element, it all happened by accident. And it all happened at the same time in one big explosion. There were no do-overs. There was no explosion. Oh, well, that didn't work like we wanted it to. It's got to be something different. No, it all happened by accident at the same time. Crazy, isn't it, that anyone could believe that? He binds up the waters in, his, in the sick clouds, and the clouds are not broken under them. Job was also amazed at the sea. He says he stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. You ever stood on the shore of the ocean and watched those waves crashing in, all the power those waves have? 
Have you experienced the tide moving in and out? My in-laws live in North Florida, in the boring part of Florida, but they're an hour and a half away from the Gulf of Mexico. And my father-in-law loves to go fishing down in the Gulf of Mexico, and we love to go with them. I've got a boy who is very upset if we don't get to go and catch some fish with Papa in the Gulf of Mexico when we go for a visit. Well, when we're planning our trip, weeks in advance, my father-in-law can tell us the days that we can go fishing by looking at the tides. Those tides move in a predictable, forecastable manner. And he can tell us the precise time when that tide is going to be high. And he said, we'll need to be down there fishing at this time on that day so we can catch that tide. And so when we get down there, we know what day we're going to go fishing, and so we get ready for that. And often we'll be a little bit over-anxious and we'll get up too early and get to the, the gulf too early. Where we, where we launch the boat is in a little creek, not much bigger than a ditch. It runs out into the Gulf of Mexico. And if we get down there too early, the, that ditch is dry. It's just mud. That tide's not come in yet. And there'll be a lot of other fishermen who got excited and be waiting on the tide to come in. And one of them will decide, well, the water's high enough now, and he'll launch his boat. And he goes just a little ways, and he gets stuck. All he has to do is sit there for a few minutes, and here comes the water, and his boat is floating, and out he goes. And when he makes it out, we know it's time for us to go, and we all go. And as we get out to where that river opens up into the Gulf of Mexico, there are buoys out there to mark the channel, and the water is just pouring and rushing in past those buoys. Those buoys are waving in the water. Water's rippling all around them. Massive amounts of water that are coming in to fill up that creek. And it's not just in that creek, is it? It's all of the oceans. That water is moving back and forth by God's design. And what about a hurricane? Are you as impressed as I am with the power of a hurricane? It's one of my life's dreams to witness a hurricane. I want to be in one of the biggest, baddest hurricanes in a concrete bunker. And I want that thing to go right over the top of me. I want to see that power. The amazing power of a hurricane. God stirs up these storms. He can control them. Job was amazed. I am too. And it says here, by his spirit, he adorned the heavens. Have you ever seen the stars? I mean, really seen the stars? Have you ever seen the Milky Way? A couple years ago, we were out in the desert of Utah, outside of Moab, Utah. Where the sky is pitch dark. No city lights to pollute the sky with light. Pitch dark sky. We were in the middle of the desert. There was nothing to see. But I told my family, we're camping here tonight so we can see the Milky Way. And we sat outside waiting for it to get dark. And when it got dark, the sky lit up with all of those stars. And the Milky Way is just not a bunch of stars. It's a band of light that goes from one horizon to the other. A beautiful and amazing sight. And God adorned the heavens by His Spirit. Amazing things that we see in the world around us. Amazing things that impress Job in God and his power. But look at what he said in verse 14 of chapter 26. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. 
and how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? You know, I think we're tempted a lot of times to look at the world around us and say, wow, that's impressive. That must have taken all God had. You know, when I build something, when I do something, I put everything I've got into it. Maybe it's a piece of furniture that I'm building. And my wife has quit asking me to build furniture because I'm not very good at it. But I get that. When I start building that thing, boy, I'm sanding and, and rubbing and cutting. And, and finally, I get to the point where I say, well, that's just going to have to be good enough. You know, it wasn't that way when God built the earth and the world and the universe. He didn't work on his heart. He said, well, that's just going to have to be good enough. Job says these are the mere edges of his ways. This didn't take everything that God had. And God's revealed a lot to us in his word. We know a lot about God in the Bible. What a wonderful thing it is. I want to tell you, we don't know everything about God. Job said we hear just a faint whisper of him. That's amazing. And these facts that Job experienced and his understanding that these are just the mere edges of God's ways impacted Job's life. I want to tell you, they need to impact our life as well. The remainder of our time this morning, let's talk about what this means. If all that we see around us, all that we experience of God in this world around us, if these are just the mere edges of God's ways, if this is just the hem of the garment, that has some very, very serious impacts and ramifications on our lives. First off, if these are just the mere edges of God's ways, I want to tell you we should not expect to understand everything about God. There are many who have lost their faith because they thought if they couldn't understand everything about God, then they couldn't believe anything about him. For example, there are some folks who struggle with the idea of God being omnipotent. And they really are puzzled by that. And, and they sit around thinking about how could God be omnipotent? And they ask the question, could God build a rock so big that he couldn't move it? Well, if he could build a rock so big that he couldn't move it, then he wouldn't be omnipotent, would he? But if he couldn't build a rock so big that he couldn't move it, he couldn't, wouldn't be omnipotent. Ah, oh, I can't understand that. I, I, I'm going to throw the whole idea of God out. I, that doesn't make any sense to me. Or how could God know the future and not be controlling it? How could God know how things are going to go in my life but not have any control over it? That doesn't make any sense. How could he do that? How could he be omniscient? Or how could he be eternal? How could anything ha not have a beginning or an end? You're mean to tell me that God had no beginning, no end? That's ridiculous. I can't understand that. No, I I'm not going to buy into this idea of God. No, if these are just the mere edges of God's ways, I'm not going to be able to understand everything about God. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, Moses said, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God has told us about him. He's told us things that we can understand about him. There are so many things about God that we do not know, that we don't understand, because we see just the mere edges of his ways, and we hear just a faint whisper of him. We need not to expect to understand everything about God. Over in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Paul put it this way, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, 
How unsearchable are his way, judgments and his ways past finding out. We don't understand about God. Everything that we would like to understand, maybe. But we have enough. It is arrogant, I believe, for us to believe that we could understand everything about God if he revealed it to us. My little pea brain and your brain wouldn't understand it if God had told us because we hear such a small, faint whisper of him. These are the mere edges of God's ways. We shouldn't expect to understand everything about God. And furthermore, I want to tell you this morning, if these are just the mere edges of his ways, we shouldn't expect to understand why. You know, many have lost their faith because they didn't understand why God would allow certain things to happen. Why did God let my loved one get sick and die? Why does God let me get sick? I love God. I'm trying to serve him. Why did he allow this to happen to me? Why do I have difficulties on my job? Why do I have challenges in my family? Why do I have this that I don't like or that? that why, why, why? Why does God allow that? If we hear just the small, small, faint whisper of God and see just the mere edges of his ways, we need not to expect why, to understand why everything happens. We need to understand that we are serving an almighty God, a God who we see just the mere edges of his ways, but that is in control. He is in control, and he's promised that he'll care for us and he'll provide for us. And we need to have the attitude that Jesus had. There are a lot of things going on in Jesus' life that he could have said, why? Why me? Why? But notice the attitude that he displayed in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Jesus didn't get perplexed and troubled about the why. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. And my life doesn't always go the way that I wish it would. And your life doesn't either. And we need not to get worried about the why. We just need to trust the one who's in control, as Jesus did. Commit ourselves to him who judges righteously. We're not going to understand why. But you want to tell you something else about that we need to be careful about wanting to understand why. We need to be careful about wanting to understand why God gave us certain commands. There are many people, sadly many Christians, who won't obey God unless they can understand why he told them to do what he told them to do. There are many people who will throw the instruction out if it doesn't make sense to them. For example, God has told me I need to give of my means on the first day of the week. But I've got a lot of financial commitments. I've got a lot of maybe some financial troubles. Why would God want me to give when I've got so many other things I need to be doing? Why? Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. I'm not going to do it. Or why does God want me to stand up for what is right? Why does God want me to stand for what's right and confess Jesus before men? Why does he want me to do that? Because it's not going to do any good. It's just going to cause trouble in the workplace. It's going to cause tension in the family. I'm going to look at as the weirdo in the neighborhood. Why does God want me to stand up for what's right? I don't understand that. I think I'm going to ignore that one for now. Or why does God want me to be different? Why does he want me to be different? Doesn't he want me to fit in? I don't understand that. 
Why does God tell me to not associate with wayward Christians? Why does God tell me not to keep company with Christians who've gone astray? And maybe they're in my family and I'm told I can't keep company with them anymore. I've got to mark them. Why would God do that? I don't understand. You know, if I'm not with him, we're fishing buddies. You know, if I, if I quit going fishing with him, how am I going to be able to influence him for good? I don't understand that. I think I'll ignore that one. And this marriage and divorce and remarriage thing? Come on now. God wants me to stay in a marriage that's not happy and not fulfilling? That doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to throw it out. You see, we, we like to run God's instructions and God's commands that we can clearly read in black and white. We like to run those through this filter. Do they make sense to me? And if they make sense to me, I'll do them. But if they don't make sense to me, and they seem to be like too much to ask or unreasonable, or I don't even think it'd work out if I did it that way, I'm going to throw those out. I'm going to pass everything through this filter. If I understand why, if it makes sense to me, I'll do it. If not, it's out. I want to tell you that if you do it that way, if you have that approach to God's word, what you end up with is a God that's no smarter than you, a God that makes no better decisions than you do. You end up with a God that's just like you. In fact, you are God then. You get to decide what's right. It makes sense to me, I'll do it. If it doesn't, I won't. Just throw the whole thing away, it won't work. We need to stop asking why and start obeying what God said to do. Because what we are serving is a God whose ways we just see the mere edges of. We hear just a small, faint whisper of him. If he said to do it, we need to do it and not ask why. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read of the account of Abraham being asked to offer his only son Isaac. Now there is a command every one of us would ask why. God, are you serious? You want me to do what? But notice Abraham's attitude in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Abraham didn't ask why, did he? You remember Abraham got up early the next morning and started on that journey three days, three days to be struggling over what he was about to do Surely he could have stopped at any time and said, God, this isn't making sense to me. I'm not doing it. He did it. And God asked us to do some things that are hard. Some things maybe we'd rather not do. Some things we don't understand why, but we need to do them. We need to be like Abraham and do them. You know, when we go to the doctor, we don't go to the doctor the same way we go to God's many times. We go to the doctor with a problem. We need help. The doctor comes in. He says, you know what I think we need to do? We need to do this test and this test, and then we're probably going to have to do this surgery. Do any of us argue with the doctor? No, doctor, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why we'd want to do this test. I think this test would be better. I don't know why you want to cut there. I think if you cut here, it'd be better. We don't do that, do we? The doctor knows better. That's why we went to go see the doctor, and we take what the doctor said, and we do it. But when it comes to doing what God said, ah, if it doesn't make sense to me, I'm not going to do it. In Psalm 50, verse 21, notice what God said about the children of Israel. These things you've done and I've kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. 
The children of Israel thought that they could think like God. And they could understand like God. And God said, you're wrong. You can't. And I'm going to show you. We serve a God that we just need to get in line with and obey because he has plans for us. As he did with the children of Israel in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I have think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. God knows what he's doing. God has plans for us. We just need to obey and not expect to know why. We see the mirror, just the mere edges of God's ways. I'm going to tell you something else. What must the entirety of God be like? If all the things we see around here are just the mere edges of God's ways, what must his entirety be like? You ever drive by a big fancy house and wonder what it must be like inside that house? Some big mansion up on a hill. wonder, what must it be like in that house? What must the kitchen be like? I wonder what those bathrooms are like in that house. What a wonderful place it must be to live in that house. Or maybe you're like me. You've got a, a son who's really into cars. You see a big fancy car go by or a fancy sport car. You wonder, what's it like in that car? What must it be like to drive that car? We go to car shows sometimes and we'll see those cars. You've got to bend down and you've got to look in and see, what must it be like in there? I want to tell you, if this is just the mere edges of God's ways, what must the entirety of God be like? Can you imagine that? What must God be like if this incredible world, with all of its fine intricacies, working perfectly as God designed it, what must he be like to see the entirety of him? In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, Paul got to experience that. And he basically said, I can't tell you how amazing it was. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such a one caught up to the third heaven and knew such, I knew such a man. Whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. How he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man also, I can't tell you everything I experienced to experience the entirety of God. In Revelation chapter 4, John got to experience this. And I think he's got to break it down into terms that you and I can understand because it was so incredible that we, we can't even understand how impressive it, it is. Look at Revelation chapter 4 beginning verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as, if, as it were a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders setting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. An amazing picture that John's painting there. But I don't believe that even touches the hem of the garment about how amazing it was. In 
Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus chapter 33, God says, You cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. God is so amazing and so incredible. I don't think that he's telling us here that it's a a punishment worthy of death. If you see God, it's a sin that you'll be punished by death. I think what he's telling Moses here in Exodus is that he is so amazing that if you saw God in this form, in this human existence, if you saw God, it would kill you. That's how amazing he is. We serve a God that is so amazing. We see just the mere edges of his ways. If we saw it all, it would kill us in our human form. But there is a day when we will be able to see it. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. We'll be able to see God someday. And if we believe that, and if we want to do that, it's going to change the way that we live. If you have this hope, you'll purify yourself in preparation for that time when you can see God as he is. I want to see that. It's going to change my life. But someone would say, maybe in the audience this morning, well, you don't know the kind of life I've lived. You don't know the kind of person I've been. I've got serious doubts that God could save me. I've got serious doubts I'd ever be able to be in heaven with God. Or maybe we haven't lived such a terrible life, we think, but we're struggling. We've got doubts. We wonder, can God really save me? You know, I struggle with things. I struggle with attitudes. I struggle with various temptations and thoughts and deeds that I just struggle with. I don't know if God will be able to save me. Finally, this morning, I want to tell you that if we serve a God who these are just the mere edges of his ways, I want to tell you that just the mere edges of God's ways are enough to save us. God can save you, and he can save me. It's not too big of a job. It's not too big of a task. In John chapter 20, in John chapter 20, verse 30 beginning, And many other signs did truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. John says Jesus did a lot of things. We're not even touching the hem of the garment. These are just the mere edges of the things that Jesus did while he was here on the earth. But you've got enough to be saved with what we have right here. Can God save you? Yes, he can. He has given us what we need to be saved. We've all committed egregious sins. We've all done things that we're ashamed of. We've all messed up. We've done things that we knew better. We have thumbed our nose at God. We have done things that ought to send us straight to hell. But God can save us. He loves us so much. And he's so gracious, he can save us. And just the edges of God's ways are enough. In Luke chapter 8, verse 43. You remember the story of the woman who had the issue of blood and she couldn't be healed? And she wanted to get to Jesus in that crowd and she just wanted to touch the edge of his garment. 
Just the edge of his garment would be enough to save her. She knew that, and she touched him. Notice in verse 43. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. Just touching the edge of the garment was enough to save her. And I want to tell you this morning that just the edges of God's ways are enough to save us. We serve an amazing God. An amazing God who's created an amazing world to show us his power and his might. An amazing God who has amazing grace and love for us and wants each and every one of us to be saved. Are you taking advantage of that offer this morning? Tell you something else about the God that we serve, the amazing God that we serve, is that each and every one of us is going to have to stand before him on the day of judgment. The creator of this amazing world, we're going to have to stand before him. Do you want to stand before him unprepared? Do you want to stand before him saying, yeah, I don't think I want to do that, God? Are you ready for that? If you're here this morning and you're not living like you should, we encourage you to make correction of that. If there's anything we can do to help, will you let us know while we stand and sing?